All right, everyone, welcome back to the Be Fit Podcast. I'm your host, Connor Murphy, as always, joined here with the lovely Emily Kaplan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Emily has done an array of things in her life and still continues to, but currently the CEO and co-founder of the Broken Science Initiative. Um, Tell us about that. So Greg and I launched this after he sold, Greg Glassman, after he sold CrossFit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, he and I had both been looking at sort of what we call broken science for a couple decades. I had been looking at it as an investigative reporter and he'd been looking at it, obviously, as the you know founder and owner of CrossFit. And so we had this sort of like mutual friendship over all of this bad science, and really looking at nutrition and then spreading into all kinds of chronic illness. And after he sold the company, he kind of had both, I guess, the bandwidth to really dive in deep, as well as, you know, sort of time and because he had been canceled, which we can get into all of that nonsense. Um, he also was isolated. And so he was kind of looking for a project. Mm-hmm. And so we started looking back at the philosophy of science, which I hadn't really spent much time on other than like in college, and trying to figure out like when did all of this happen? Because I think, you know, we had COVID where a lot of people became kind of exposed to science and like the average person was talking about science in a way that, you know, we weren't, we didn't have pre-COVID. Um, and a lot of questions and skepticism started coming up around topics of, you know, like whether it was testing or disease or results or death rates or whatever. Um, but Greg and I both knew this like it really started way before COVID, right? This wasn't a COVID problem. And I think, you know, we have things like the replication crisis, which was something that John Iannides really, you know, pushed forward with one of the most cited research papers ever. But actually, we now think that that was really a symptom of the larger problem, which is this idea of going from something that is based on predictive value, so outcomes that can be repeated, to a sort of more industry-focused way of look. I mean, pharma-focused way of looking at um, how to get the outcome you want. And so I like to say to people who are familiar with CrossFit, which is mm-hmm. like probably your audience, that like I think of broken science is to the mind what CrossFit was to the body. And so it's going to be a very like sort of rigorous, we're going to have a seminar, we're offering a lot of online stuff. So we have tons of readings and videos and like sort of explaining some of this stuff. But ultimately, it'll be a seminar very similar to the L1, um, where you can go and you're going to learn to basically how to critically think how to read news and sess up what's bullshit and what's real, and really like how to read medical studies. Because at this point, I think it's up to the individual, sort of like with CrossFit, it's up to the individual. The onus is on you to make sure that you know you're getting good information because frankly, like doctors don't have time to be going through all the literature. So if you or somebody you know is sick, it really is a benefit to you to know what's being, what are you being told to do and why and what are the repercussions for not doing it or doing it or whatever? So you can chart your own way. Now, one thing that you said that I want to kind of break down for listeners that may not know what it is, is that you talked about the replication crisis. Can you talk about that, what it is and why it's so important and what's going so wrong with it in health science today? Yeah, so the replication crisis was really the, that name comes from this one paper um, that this professor out of Stanford wrote. And what he did was he looked back and he tried to, you know, sort of see how many of these, you know, massive research findings could be replicated. And what the conclusion he came to is that most research findings are false. They cannot be replicated. And so I would add to that that we have, without getting like too into the sort of weeds on some of the stuff, Mm -hmm. we have tools that we use, like in order to be published in a high impact journal, you have to have a p-value, which is significant. And the p-value is a, a 
formula that basically looks at a null hypothesis. Null just means none. So it means there's no change. And then you have an intervention group. And the intervention group is like the thing you're testing, right? So like the drug or the treatment or whatever. And a p-value is supposed to tell you, is there a significant difference between these two things? Now, the problem with that is that, A, you're not testing the null. So you're going in with the assumption that there's no change, right? But the second part of it that's important to say is that you're not actually even testing your intervention. You're just looking at the relationship between these two figures. And so, and that says nothing to you about the ability to replicate results. So in science, it's really important to be able to define terms, to be able to measure things, and to be able to do it over and over again so that you get the same outcome. So if I tell you, like, oh, hey, take this drug, it's going to do X, and I've tested it, and I haven't shared my data and let another, like, sort of unbiased party do the same testing, I can't say that that wasn't just a fluke, right? And so we see this in things like... Um, Cancer and hematology, there was a big um, project, I guess you'd call it, that Amgen worked on where they went and they tried to replicate, and I'm not going to get the number right, but let's say 35 hallmark cancer studies, and they couldn't. And they're working on drug development. So if they can't replicate those results, because the other thing that happens, right, is that like I do a study and I say, hey, here are my results. And then you take my work as though it's true, and so then you refine it and build upon it. Well, if the foundation is flawed, everything that follows will also be flawed, right? So Amgen went back to the original scientists and they basically said, hey, look, we're having trouble replicating these results. They rebuilt labs. They tried to control every variable to figure out why aren't we getting the same outcome? They could not, for the majority of those studies, they couldn't. And the thing that really bothers me that most people don't know about this whole thing is that they kept it all anonymous, private, in order to get the scientists buy-in to help them try to replicate. They promised them anonymity. So most of those studies, in fact, all of them, are still out there. So Amgen knows that most of these studies are bullshit. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. We couldn't replicate them. They went back to the scientists. They said, like, we've done everything. We've recreated the lab. We had you help, right? Like, this, it isn't what you said it is. And they haven't been retracted. So when I talk about the foundation of the literature, it's still out there, and people are still building on it. I mean, we just had this big thing in Boston with Dana-Farber. I don't know if you've followed any of this. Mm. But they have a, a guy on this, you know, sort of, I don't know what you call it, forum called PubPeer, identified 50 papers 50 studies out of Dana-Farber that had image manipulation or problems with their data sets. And this is, it's crazy because we just had this happen in Alzheimer's research where they found that people were Photoshopping the images for some of the most groundbreaking Alzheimer's research. In this case, it looks like they are taking images from like say day one of the trial and they're replicating them, like copy-paste replication for later in the intervention group. So they're saying like, look, the tumors grew in these mice on this side, but they didn't on this side. But it's a... Same photo. Same fucking photo, right? Now the problem becomes, when you look at the Dana-Farber situation, this guy named Rollins, who's in charge of the internal investigation, was an author on two of the papers. So he's recused himself, and he's like, I'm not going to look at my two papers, right? But I'll look at all the other ones. Well, he's looking at papers that look, Lori Glimsher is the head of Dana-Farber. That's his boss. He's investigating her work. And he's co-author on a, basically like all the other scientists that are named in this investigation, he's co-authored other papers with, 
right? So we're going to break a bunch of those stories like this week and next week on Broken Science. But it's like it's so corrupted that it's really hard as an individual to not feel like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat, right? Like how can this possibly be that medicine is so broken? Um, and, it, you know, it's interesting, like as a former member of the media, it's the Harvard Crimson broke this story, right? And we had the same thing where Stanford's president just resigned for scientific misconduct, and it was the Stanford newspaper that broke the story. Like, where is the media? Why? And even STAT, which I think usually does a pretty good job of science reporting, in their coverage of this, which was a week after the Crimson broke the story, they <laughs> didn't follow up with any questions that you would want to know, right? So they asked this guy, Rollins, like, oh, can we, what papers are you looking at? And he was like, I won't tell you, right? How are you going to do this investigation in an unbiased way? They didn't push back on the fact that he's like a co-author with all of these people on other things. Lori Glimpshire, we have a video of her saying that he's like her best friend. Like, how can you possibly have scientific integrity and lead this investigation? And it's like, it's so frustrating. And yet, like, Greg and I joke that it's like, if we had to pick, like, our preferred porn, it would be science misconduct, right? Like, it's just like, it's endlessly like, no, what? They did not do that. Like, how is that possible, right? And how do we see this and nobody else is seeing it? Like, it's, it feels like a dirty secret, right? But it's like, it's pervasive. I mean, like, literally, I know I'm just, like, ranting. But, like, in the last six months, we've had Harvard's president and Stanford's president resign because of scientific misconduct, like, that's massive. These are our leading institutions, right? And the credibility is in the toilet. I think that's so hard for a lot of people. And especially, I'd imagine you talked about being an individual, like, you know, feeling like you're not, you know, a person out there wearing a tin hat. I think about the Boston Marathon, and you see how many people are representing Dana-Farber and how many people are giving money to that and how many people are, and how many people have had relatives or themselves had suffered through cancer. And so when stuff and information like this starts to come out, people are really quick to kind of give that finger and like, oh, no, this is this is the bad. This is the people who have taken care of me. Mm -hmm. But how difficult of a thing is it to explain and get across to someone that, hey, hey, maybe they didn't, maybe a lot of people had their best interest, but if it's, if it's rotten from the core from how it started, there are people whose heads are in the right spot, but it's almost like, you know, it's almost like telling you, hey, like Santa Claus ain't bringing you presents. Yeah, and it's so disheartening because honestly, I mean, so the other hat I wear is that I have this like sort of strategic comms crisis communication firm. Mm -hmm. And so I know really well when people are in a crisis or a high stress situation, you know, the your prefrontal cortex shuts down, which is, you know, decision making, judgment, whatever. And the back of your brain, the amygdala starts firing like crazy. That's instincts, right? That's the T-Rex is coming for me. I've got to get out of here. And I think what's so interesting is that like anybody you know, I mean, I can talk about like family members who are contrarian and smart and outspoken, go to the doctor and they become so passive. And I think it's because you're scared, right? You go to the doctor, you're diagnosed with some terminal illness or some chronic disease, and you are be like literally in the care of somebody who know is charged with knowing more than you and guiding you. So you don't want to speak up and you don't want to ask questions and you don't want to sound like you're being defiant or you know more. And so people become so passive that like you kind of go and get on this like conveyor belt that just like leads you down a path without being an active participant. So one of my goals for Broken Science is that we actually give people tools so you can go to the doctor and you can ask good questions that doctors should know the answer to, and that hopefully that inspires doctors to also do more research. I mean, I don't like to blame anybody per se because I don't think that people go into medicine 
to be corrupted, right? The inherently I, I, bad. No I'm way. Fuck everyone on this. No way, right? Like it does. It doesn't make any sense. But I also think like if you talk to doctors today, they're so frustrated. They spend so much more time on like billing codes and insurance bullshit than they do like holding the hand of their patient, which is why they got into it. So. If you talk to them one-on-one, like not as a patient, they'll be the first to say, like, I don't know, right? Like, I'm doing – I'm following standard of care. I'm trying to read the journal articles when I can. But, like, peer review isn't – it's another one of these things that we think of as a form of validation, and it's really not. It's consensus, right? So, like, peer reviewers, when you're – like, you submit an article to, you know, a leading journal, you have to pay – to have it published, which first of all, in my world as a journalist, that's advertising, right? That's not journalism. There's no fact-checking. The people who are editing it are volunteers, right, who are very busy, and they're told from the outset, assume the data is right, assume nothing went wrong, right? Your job, the experiment or the study, which is usually, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, has been concluded, so you're not going in and saying, like, hey, the way you guys did this doesn't really make sense. You're not going to get the result. Why would you do that? They've, they're already done. So it's so limited, even in what a peer reviewer is supposed to give back as criticism. It's not like an editor. They're not going to get you to go rewrite it, right? And so it's, again, one of these things that's supposed to be sort of a safeguard, and it doesn't work that way in practice. So sort of a long-winded way of explaining, like, I think, you know, there's a lot of room for education, and it's the individual, it's the doctor, I think it's also the media. I don't think a lot of members of the media really understand how to read statistics. Um, and so they get a press release on something and they assume it's right, you know, and they run with it. And they don't have a lot of time to fact check anymore. So it's a kind of a shit show <laughs> of the whole thing. I think one of the best resources that I've had that kind of opened my eyes to the pharmaceutical industry is the book Bad Pharma. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember it. It, might, it may have been Karin, it may have been... Um, Pat Sherwood or, or even Coach Glassman like early on who had recommended the book. But there were multiple times that I had to set that book down, not because I'm a slow reader and, you know, you know, slightly not the smartest person, but there were times when it was just, it was utter, there was just utter frustration. Yeah. And you, you read things about people suffering and, you know, even referencing things where there was like a test done on a certain, um, on, on a certain chemical and a product and it was, it had been done before and it went terribly, terribly wrong. And they were like, we're not going to publish this because it didn't give us the results that they wanted to. Yeah. And then years later, the same thing happened, which should have been avoided because of, of that. And it's, it just kind of seems like the entire industry isn't doing the right thing. But you have to ask, and you, I mean, pretty much everyone should know the answer. Why? Why is all of this stuff broken? Why is it, why is it the people that should be taking care of us? And I, you know, I, I, I agree with you on the sentiment that like, it's not like doctors are like, I'm going to get into this, like, screw some people over and no. kill people. But, you know, like you said, a doctor's not have time to read the studies. I mean, you can read the headline of a study and you can read the study and be like, well, that's not even what that says. Yeah. But why? So the root of it. There are two answers. One is philosophical, which I feel like we, you know, really have gotten into, which is that if you go back and you look at there's sort of this point where um, – Hume denies induction or calls into question induction. Karl Popper then denies it. So Karl Popper is a big philosopher of science. And he basically said, you know, something is scientific only if it can be falsified. So it's in the spirit of it, you're saying remain skeptical. 
right? You have to be constantly trying to disprove yourself. But in the application of it, induction is basically this notion of like, we can take information that we know and we can apply it to make a prediction about the future. It has to be both. But what happened is that we basically had this split because of the philosophy of science. And so everything in medicine started going to this idea of trying to figure out what was significant and what wasn't, rather than being comfortable with this idea of uncertainty which is really, like, once you wrap your head around some of this stuff, it's, like, mind-blowing. Like, everything we do in life, we think about, like, we want some certainty. I think it actually comes down to control. I think the human brain really wants to feel like there's they're in control of something, right? And if you're in um, the the pursuit of knowledge or interests or whatever, you, you know very well you're never going to be certain. You're cutting down on uncertainty. But you've got to reframe it that way. And so one of the examples that I always like to give is that if you look at the difference between, and Greg is really good at this because actually both of our dads worked as you know rocket scientists at different stages of their lives, um, but Greg's dad was like the head of research and development at Hughes Aircraft, right? And if you look at that industry, what do you find? You find like, okay, the rocket is supposed to take off. It's supposed to land on this target. It's supposed to cause this much damage, right? And, like, it better fucking do what we said it was going to do, right? Mm -hmm. So we test and we make sure and whatever. And there's no p-values, right? There's no statistical testing. There's no peer review. It's top secret, right? But it works. Why? Because it's all based on predictable outcome. Whereas you look at medicine and it's the opposite. It's like, hey, let's – it's too cost prohibitive to do, um, you know, randomized clinical trials of people in a metabolic ward. So instead, let's take a whole population of people and look at different data points and then come up with some conclusion about it. Now, you can't. You could come up with a theory, but until you've actually tested it, it's nothing more than a theory. But, like, nutrition's a great example of this. Like, we've done this with, like, you know, the Mediterranean diet. What the fuck is the Mediterranean diet? Like, I've spent a lot of time in the Mediterranean. People eat very different things. People are not just eating olive oil and fish. Some places, they're mostly eating pasta right? Like, so what do you mean by that? We go back and you look at that or like the seven country study and the numbers are actually all over the place. So they get rid of the ones that are annoying and they create a linear line and they say like, this is, this is, this is health. This is working for them. So we should all do these things, right? And that's not science. That's like fortune telling. I don't, you know what I mean? Like that's a totally different thing. And I think that if you look at, like, why is it all broken? Well, so we had this break in the philosophy of science, and it led to these sort of statistical tools that we use to justify science. And again, like, I don't know that that was done with any malfeasance in mind, Mm -hmm. but it opened the door for all kinds of corruption because you can then go in and you can steer the results how you want because it's not based on predictable outcomes. It's based on what we want the outcome to be, right? And so, I mean, to your earlier point, like we saw this with sugar research where like there were these early cancer studies that were done. I think it was in like the 70s. And they were looking at sugar intake. And I mean, there were other ones done on fat, same thing. And they were canceled because it was, they were paid for by sugar. And they were showing like, hey, shit, this looks like it might be contributing to cancer. Well, we aren't going to publish that. Like, so scrap it, right? Put it in a drawer. Don't ever talk about it again. Like that happens. Yeah. That was uh, another great book, Sugar Blues. Mm-hmm. When I've actually read that book a couple of times because you, you do kind of hear things like that. And you hear things, even in like a cancer research, is that like a, you know, like a cancer cell can't proliferate without the presence of glucose. Yeah. And you're like, 
what's the you know and and what's the test for it? You know, everyone drinks just like sugary glucose water to see if the cancer lights up. You're like, yeah. is that not right? The whole PET scan is based on you know, sugar or glucose activity. Why are we not focusing? I mean, again, I'm not not a doctor. I've had zero college education at all. But you read that and you're like, you got to stop we, undermining yourself. Shouldn't we be leaning into that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Right. And I think, you know, it's interesting, Tom Seafried, who I don't know if you're familiar with his yes. work, but he's at Boston College. You should have him on. He, um, I like, very, you know, way back, actually, that's how I got to know Greg, was I interviewed him. And he was like, you know, I don't think this is going to get solved by research. I think it's going to get solved by a community of people, which is part of the reason that I'm like, so excited that Greg Glassman loves my work. And I was like, I did CrossFit. And I was like, wait a minute, what? Like Greg Glassman, the CrossFit dude? Like, how do you know him? And he was like, oh, he gave me a little bit of money. And he, his dad went through Tom's entire book and, like, asked him, like, recalculated all his figures and everything before Greg gave him any money. So I sent an email to, like, info at CrossFit or whatever. And I was like, hey, I'd love to talk to Mr. Glassman. And it was, like, two minutes later, my phone rang. And Greg was like, I love Tom Seafried. Like, he's amazing. He's totally on to something. And it turned out we knew all these people in common, right? And that sort of, like, forged our friendship. But what was interesting about Tom was that when I was working on that story, I had written for, you know, the, all kinds of big outlets, right, and produced for 2020 and primetime. Like, I could kind of write my way. If I had a good story, I'd just figure out what the right outlet was for it. Mm-hmm. And everybody that I pitched that story to was like, you have to find somebody who says, like, why this guy's a quack. And so I would call all these other cancer researchers, and they would be like, I don't know. But if that's true, I would have heard about it. And I'm like, well, don't you? Like, he has those nuclear transfer experiments that he relies a lot on, where you take the mitochondria of a cancer cell, and you move it to a healthy cell, and it develops cancer. You take the nucleus, and you move it, and it doesn't, right? So, like, we all, the conventional wisdom is that cancer is in the nucleus, not the mitochondria. And I'm like, if you do nothing else, consider that experiment. It's so simple, right? And, like, you take a healthy cell, right, and you're looking at it, and all of a sudden it has cancer from a different part of the cell than you ever thought could spread cancer? Like, how can you not be curious about that? No one wanted to look at it. So I never got that story published. I went on, like, um, like New England Cable News or something and, like, talked about all of it. And this other reporter who was on doing a different segment, she was like, you haven't sold that story and you're talking about it? Like, somebody else is going to pick it up. That's a crazy story. And I was like, at this point, I don't fucking care. Yeah, because who, nobody yeah, wants if it. If anyone can, right? do it. And that was so eye-opening to me. I mean, diabetes is the same way. The Washington Post recruited me to do a bunch of health stories. And I pitched a story to them about Verda which was, you know, had the biggest, longest, um, you know, clinical outcome treatment group, whatever, of reversing diet, type 2 diabetes using diet, removing carbs, right? And nobody wanted to – the biggest trial ever. And the Washington Post was like, well, you can't do that because Verda's paying for the study. And I was like, you don't think Eli Lilly's funding all the insulin trials? Like, what are we talking about? Mm -hmm. This is really important information to get out to the public. And I wrote a column for Boston Magazine on it. And in that column, I said something like, um, giving kids, like, basically, if if we gave kids, like, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches who had peanut allergies and just told them, like, take an EpiPen. That's like basically what we're doing with diabetics when we're like, just eat sugar, but have a little bit, you know, just up your insulin that night. Like that's bananas, right? And I had, like, there was so much backlash for that. Like I couldn't believe how upset people got. And I think part of the reason people get upset when they hear this (coughs) stuff is because they've been following doctor's orders. And the idea that their doctor didn't mention to them, like, hey, we can, you know, if I got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, I'd want somebody to sit me down and say like, hey, Em, look, it's going to suck. 
but you're going to have to like get sugar out of your diet, right? Maybe you should start working out, right? These are things that you can do so you don't have to be medicated for the rest of your life. Or it can give you insulin and you're probably going to develop gout and you might lose your leg, right? But like that, these are your choices. Like, huh, I think I'd have to think long and hard about that choice for about two seconds before yeah. I would say like, let's try the sugar thing. It's not even a conversation. It's not standard of care. It's like this weird bizarro land where it's like, let's just medicate you. And every medication comes with side effects. So you're going to have to take more medications to deal with the side effects. Like nobody wants to be on that conveyor belt, right? Which I think is like sort of the beauty of like the way that Greg ran CrossFit, where it was this idea of like, hey, you know what? It's up to you. You can show up or not. You can follow the protocol or not. But if you do, you're going to see there's benefit to it. And so just try. Um, it reminds me of a quote, and it was really significant to me during the pandemic and to everything with vaccines. But um, and I think it's also why people have so much pushback on it, whether they're from a medical standpoint or not. And it is that it is easier to fool a man than to convince a man he's been fooled. Mm. And so if if you have someone who's been, you know, being treated type two diabetes by you know injecting insulin for twenty years, and they have all these different sicknesses, and you said, hey there's a better way that could have happened. It's like there's that emotional attachment to it, mm -hmm. similar with cancer, similar mm -hmm. people who've had, you know, morbid experiences with cancer. And it's hard to say, hey, th there may be another way, and it may be a natural way to do it. Um, but, you know, this is true with everything, right? This is like this dogmatic way that our, we want to we want to make sure that we haven't, or we want to feel some confidence that we haven't been fooled. So I think doctors suffer from that same thing, right? Like if I've been treating patients and I've been causing more harm, than this alternative that I didn't know about. Like, that's going to be a hard thing for you to admit. But I think, you know, even, like, my mom was, like, after she got married, was, like, really determined to be, like, the best chef in the world, right, and did all this training in French cooking and very high-fat diet, right, or high-fat food, right? French food is a lot very creamy and buttery and all the good stuff, right? And my dad developed high blood pressure. And my mom was like, no salt, no fat, nothing, right? And then as all of this stuff has come out and she's learned more, she's so mad. She's so mad that they ate like bland food for like 25 years, right? When they didn't need to and that it wasn't actually having the intended effect that she still suffers from it. Like when I'm like, mm -hmm. hey mom, like you're gonna put some butter on that, right? She'll be like, oh, it still makes me feel like I shouldn't, you know? And it's because <laughs> it's ingrained. Right. And she changed her way of being because she was told it was healthier. And so then to change that paradigm again, I think is really challenging, you know? And it, like what you said, like the emotional effect of it deeper than even, you know, just a lifestyle change at that. Like how many parents have buried their kids because of this type of stuff? Yeah, yeah. And it's like to convince someone after the fact of that, it's like even just the topic is sensitive to someone. It's yeah. just that, that frustration. But I can, I guess I can understand that from like a, from like a PhD and someone who's like from like that level is, you know, they're told, hey, here's the research, here's this, here's what you can do to give that. And, you know, at what time? How many how, how many doctors are like, oh, I have six hours of my day to do nothing. Let me, let me take a look at these, you know, the, the clinical trials of this study sure. and all of that. And it's like, well, of course that is. So then at what point, you know, whether it was initially malicious or not, is it is it now malicious? Because I can't. It, I feel like that excuse only would last so long to now. Where with oh, I think it's, yeah, companies, we, we're experiencing the complete capture <clears throat> of medicine for sure. I don't have any qualms about saying that. I think that like there are 
really, and I mean, this goes into like, now I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on a little bit, but I'll back it up, which is that like, now we have this whole um, power industry that's like funding campaigns for people, right? Like the lobbying money is outrageous that's coming. And then you also have censorship, which is a real thing, right? So through COVID, um, social media companies were basically told to defer to the World Health Organization. So if you put something on YouTube that was outside the guidelines or outside the purview of what the World Health Organization had said, then your content was taken down. And it was a way of sort of skirting some liability stuff and whatever. But now they've extended it more recently at the end of last summer. So that if you, they're calling it local health authorities. So things like the um, Diabetics Association, uh, the American Medical Association, if you are promoting any content outside of what those guidelines are, your content can get taken down. So like we know a lot of like low carb influencers who have had all their content taken down. Like Mark Bell just had a bunch of his stuff taken down. Thomas DeLauer had his whole channel taken down, right, for recommending keto. And my whole thing is like what it happens is that it becomes so nonsensical because you're like, so if I'm telling people to eat a diet that we ate for thousands of years, right, like up until the present, really, when you look at the grand scheme of evolution, that's unhealthy. But if I tell them to eat like mostly carbs and like the, you know, food pyramid, we're good. Like how in the fuckity fuck does that make any sense to like just logically, like explain that to me, right? That doesn't, that's that's crazy. So I even heard from somebody that like they were saying, they were shutting people down who were saying that like sunlight is good for you. And it's like, well, it's true because that's considered a, you know, not something that the American Medical Association would recommend. But it's a deferring to an authority that's really dangerous because if you look back at like the history of medicine, what you find is that when drugs have um, an unintended consequence, right, or some intervention isn't working or there's a better one, it hardly ever comes from inside the establishment. Very often it's like patient advocacy groups that get together and they realize they're all having the same symptom. Um, I mean, Naomi Wolf did this with breast implants where she had all these women you know, sort of writing to her and saying like, hey, I think I'm developing these autoimmune problems or whatever. And she couldn't get any answers from anybody in the industry. Like all the plastic surgeons were saying like, ah, I don't know, no, it's just a one-off, whatever. So she was smart enough to go to insurance companies because insurance companies actually know what's what because they have to develop metrics by which your care is going to increase and be more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and they use all the sort of Bayesian probability theory, which is really interesting to figure that stuff out. And that's how they were able to figure out, we've got to recall all these breast implants that were leaking. So, I mean, I think there's countless examples of that. But if we silence the voices that are outside the system, because it's misinformation, which, by the way, is, like, my another trigger for me, then, like, you really get into this realm of, like, wow, we have clamped down on anybody who has anything critical to say. That's not how you get progress. I always, I always look at it from an even simpler perspective of I would look at someone like Thomas DeLauer who would post a video with his shirt off on Instagram and say, this is what I'm doing. Here's something where I've changed my mind on something. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, I would do that. Someone like Mark Bell is also a friend of mine who is saying, I've eaten this carnivore lifestyle. Here's where I am. And you're like, well, he's training and he's doing this stuff and he looks like that and he's like, has this like, yeah. you know, and they weren't saying, hey, this is what you need to do. Right. It was just saying, hey, here's what's worked. Here are research papers. Here are, here's articles or studies that are linked to it. And it comes back to even like simpler terms when I have conversations with people that are going to tell me they're like, 
well, you know, CrossFit isn't the best way to train because you're not like this or that and all this. And I do this stuff. And at, at times, and I don't want to be like that douchebag, but there are times that I'm like, hey, let's get our blood work done. And then you're going to take your shirt off and I'm going to take my shirt off. And we're going to see whose program is working. And I'm not going to say it's what works for everyone, but let's just, in this conversation between you and I, let's see whose program has more efficacy of what we want. Yeah. And then go from there. Yeah. And, and it's not like these people are saying these, you know, these diets that they're not doing or that, they're, that there's not actual research done on. But if you were looking at the people that are censoring it and we did the, you know, the let's do a blood test and shirt off test, it's not going to look very good. Right. Right. And you know what, actually, that's it, that's a trick that I use with doctors and that I'm recommending in this class that I'm doing for Broken Science on, like, how to navigate your own health care, because doctors legally have to prescribe standard of care. So they're not allowed to actually offer you an alternative treatment. So how do you get around that? If you have a doctor you have a great relationship with and you, mm-hmm. you know, you trust and you feel like you can have a dialogue with, they give you enough time and more than five minutes to talk about anything. And I've, I realized that you can say to doctors what would you do? And it completely removes them from the burden of standard of care because they're only talking about themselves. They're not talking about, you know, medically from my professional opinion. Mm -hmm. And very often you get a very different answer. So Mm. like, I just did this not that long ago with one of my kids who had an ear infection and he'd had a bunch of ear infections. And so we went into the doctor and the doctor prescribed antibiotics. And I was like, does he really need them? And the doctor was like, well, I'm, yeah, he has an ear infection. And I was like, well, what would you do if it was your kid? And he was like, ooh, I would wait. Because most ear infections are viral. I know this, right? So, like, the antibiotics aren't going to take care of it. But it will destroy their gut for a short period of time. And it's not good to be on antibiotics, right? And so I was like, well, then why, did, why, why didn't we have this conversation? And he was like, well, it's twofold. One, if I see, you know, the buildup of mucus or whatever in the ear, then, like, I'm supposed to prescribe antibiotics, But two, a lot of parents don't want to stay up with a kid who's uncomfortable, you know, all night. And so they would prefer to leave with something. But if I were you, I would wait a couple of days. And if it resolves itself, great. And if it doesn't, then you have the script and you can give them the antibiotics. Well, that's really important information. I like to know that, right? I can then make the best decision as a mom about what's right for my kid. But he would not have said that otherwise. And I've been in other situations medically where, like, I've done the same thing and I've gotten a totally different answer. And it's like, wow. And, you know, it's interesting because doctors hate doctors. Like, they don't like going to the doctor. They don't like going. They'll avoid it at all costs. That tells you something, right? So very often they're much more reluctant to take a treatment. That's something we should all pay attention to. I think that's that's a really simple way for people that are listening now. It's like, hey, on that next visit. Totally. Regardless of what it is ask the doctor, what would you do in this circumstance? Yep. And that they can kind of take that doctor hat off and be like, this is what I would do. Yeah. Because the knowledge is there, obviously. Yep. And there's also all kinds of interesting research about um, the psychology between like doctors and patients. And one of the points that I always, there are two that I always like to share because I think they're really informative and they help people, you know, sort of be more assertive when they're in the doctor. One is that doctors are so busy that they tend to only listen to your first two or three symptoms. And because patients are nervous, they tend to leave, like basically list their most insignificant symptoms first, right? So I, you're my doctor. I go in. I say like, yeah, you know, like I'm, I'm ti- more tired than I used to be. And, um, you know, sometimes I feel nauseous. And then I'm like, and I'm, you know, 
throwing up and my ass is falling out of my body, like whatever. And you're like already like, oh, she's nauseous and tired. Like, let's run a pregnancy test, right? And you haven't even heard any of the other stuff. Mm -hmm. So like, it's really important to remember, like they're not listening fully. They're thinking of like, what code do I have to enter into the system to bill for this appointment? And like, God, that's annoying. And -and so-and-so isn't helping me anymore. And like all the other stuff, right? So you have to list your most significant symptoms first. But the other is that there's a lot of research about bedside manner in doctors and that patients feel the visit to the doctor was worthwhile if they leave with a prescription. Mm. So it's, you know, I guess it is sort of like you feel like you went in with something and then you got a treatment for it. So it was worth going. Whereas if you go in and you don't get the script, you feel like, oh, shit, I should have just stayed home or like I should have, you know, not left work early or whatever. So if you're more inclined to not do the treatment route it definitely behooves you to go into the doctor and say, like, you know, I'd prefer to not take anything because it'll reframe the way they think about the success of the visit. That's very interesting. We've been kind of at a level when we talk about, you know, this podcast a lot of is like the baseline fitness piece. But we were kind of joking about this earlier with uh, just myths of, of, you know, what's happening, what, what's true and what's, what's myth. If there were someone, if there were a line of people that were in front of you today, and we're talking more of like a fitness route rather than from a broken science route. Fit people say, or just like more in that? No, we're talking about the people walking in the North Station. So let's okay. take a look at the next five people that walk through. So we okay. have these two ladies having a great conversation. Yep. Um, this lady who's on her hustle right now, yep. has got her scarf on. Yep. This one, backpack, Louis Vuitton. Then our guy who's staring at us over here. They come into here and they're like, hey, looking to improve my health. Yep. I'm going to ask two questions on this. I'll ask the first one, you can answer the second one. They say, I'm looking to improve my health. Um, from a movement standpoint, what do you recommend? Movement? Mm-hmm. Move more? And they say, okay, well, I walk to the train and then I, I you know, get off and I walk to my car and then I get in there and drive home. What else can I do? Carry something heavy in your backpack? Am I being too simple? What do I carry in my backpack? Something heavy. How heavy? As heavy as you can stand. All right. And I'm going to do that for a month. And I'm starting to see fitness gains in that. What's my next course of action? Move faster. (laughs) Move faster with your backpack. Jimmy Letchard is going to be like, thank you, Emily. <laughs> go Ruck. Everyone's <laughs> go just going to have Ruck. Go Rucks in here. Um, no, I mean, I think find more opportunities to move and find, and find ways to do them faster. I'm a big believer in, like, take the stairs. And people are like, oh, why? And I'm like, because, like, you want to be able to take the stairs for longer in your life. Yeah. Right? So, like, do more things that you want to do. Make them harder to do. Right? Like, I like gardening. So, like, carry shit. Don't use a wheelbarrow, right? Like, find little ways in your day that you can increase your work capacity, right, by mm-hmm. lifting more and moving faster. It's that simple. I think so. I, I think we overcomplicate these things. I mean, we were, you know, joking about this earlier. But I think when somebody gives you all these things you have to buy and supplements and equipment and whatever, it's overwhelming. And then people end up with, like, you know, a room full of shit they don't use. Like, just integrate it in little ways in your life And it'll become something that is, you know, really easy to attain. And I also think, like, I mean, we both know this. The more you move, the fitter you feel, the more you're going to seek out opportunities 
to do more. Yeah. So, you know, with most of the people that you just pointed out, I don't think they're doing a lot. It doesn't look like they're doing a lot. And so if, if we could just get them moving more and lifting more and stop taking shortcuts, then they might get to a point where they want to walk into a gym, right? Or they want to start doing something at home. That's true, just like dedicated exercise time. But I also think, you know, it's interesting. I lived in New York and walked everywhere. And they're different. And I mean, I've lived in a lot of different cities. It's interesting to me how like city planning promotes or demotes movement and exercise, mm -hmm. right? And you look at the populations in those places and you often see a very different aesthetic. That's interesting. I love that. I love the simplicity of it. And I think, I don't think that was the answer that I was like, that maybe I would give. But I think in the same sense, it's like being like, hey, you should go to a gym. And that, you know, I guarantee you all of those people are like, when am I going to have time for that? What am I going to do? I have to do like X, Yeah, or like I have a gym membership. What are you talking about? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, it, and it is simple. I mean, people have lived thousands of years without CrossFit or a CrossFit affiliate just doing the things. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and all of Greg's, I mean, like the functional fitness piece of this is that these are our activities that you do in your normal life, mm -hmm. right? Like you pick up the groceries and you put them on the shelf, right? And you sit down on the toilet and that's a squat, right? Like we, these are things you do. So just find ways to make them a little harder. What about from a nutrition side of things? Those, those five people lined up and they're like, all right, for the next month, we're going to do one thing that you recommend. Stop drinking sugary beverages. And they say... I mean, the average American, the standard, the, the most commonly consumed food in America is sugar cereal. Which is like, I mean, I live in an echo chamber where like, I don't know anybody who eats sugar cereal. But that is the average most consumed food in America. So like if you could cut out soda and you could cut out cereal, you'd be better off than the average American. So I mean, we're talking about the average person. Right. Right? So like ways to cut out sugar makes a, I would say, like an exponential increase in all of your metabolic panel um, improvement. I think I know why people eat cereal. Because it's delicious. So, well, that's the problem, oh, right? Oh, gosh. We have, we have created foods that have no nutritional value and that are so yummy. What are you going to do? Yeah. Right? Your brain is like, this is fantastic. I want more of this. It's readily available. It has no nutritional value. It's cheap. Right? It's got all mm -hmm. of the things that we think are good and all the harm. I mean, not I, in some ways, it's not even that it's causing harm. It's that it's like it's not giving you any benefit in some cases, right? So I think about if we were to walk into that <clears throat> little quick shop at Star Market, like the actual grocery store is down there. But you think about it as like a Quickie Mart or a 7-Eleven. You walk in there and you'd be very, very hard-pressed to find anything in there with not with, without processed liquid or refined carbohydrates in it. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's, let's go so down wait, I'm going to interrupt you. Have you seen that? It's like going around on Instagram, this, um, like side by side of all kinds of different American foods. So like cereals, one ketchup's one, and it has the ingredient list and then it has the European equivalent and the American ingredient list is like two or three times as long. And just that you're like, what's going on? And it's like corn syrup, you know, like mm -hmm. all these added sugars that are not in the European one. Like, that's interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel this way about seed oil. I think seed oil is really, really bad for you. Probably a carcinogenic ingredient in things. Definitely contributes to obesity. 
and canola oil is in everything. I've gone to Whole Foods and said to like the, my prepared foods guy, like, hey, I have an allergy to canola oil. Do you have anything that just has olive oil? And he's like, sorry, I don't. And I'm like, why is that? And he's like, it's cheaper and it doesn't congeal. So like when they're showing you the food, olive oil will look green and hard and people don't buy it. But it was the same as like our my son, I kept off of sugar for like the first two years of his life. Mm-hmm. And we have a house in Maine. So I went to like the, you know, there's no Whole Foods. We went to like the local grocery store and I asked for deli meat that didn't have sugar added to it. And then, you know, meat dude is like, what are you talking about, lady? Like, this is like roast beef. And I was like, can you just check for me? And he was like, sure. And he, after a couple of minutes, was like, you're going to have to come back. And after you're done with the rest of your shopping, I can't find any meat that we haven't added sugar to. Like, it's everywhere. So. And the reason being is because it's cheaper. I think the reason that sugar is added to everything is because it makes it taste better. Right. And so if you're not knowledgeable enough, but you're like, oh, hey, this, you know, kind of ham is much better than it tastes better. My kids eat it. Right. Yeah. They don't eat the other one. And I mean, grownups are the same. Like I joke, you go to Starbucks in the morning and you see people getting their like mocha frappuccino peppermint whatever. And you're like, you know, that's a Sunday. Right. Yeah, you're, I, I tell it to people all the time. I'm like, so you want a milkshake? You right. want dessert is what you're looking for. When would you have ice cream for breakfast? <laughs> I tell that to Hurley, and now he's on the black coffee train because I was like, I was just crushing someone who was on a podcast about being like, you, you're having dessert. Yeah. The first thing you're feeding yourself in the morning is, is a sugary dessert. And I her, feel this and way about Hurley juice. Like, like you see moms at the like, you know, playground giving their kids like – you know, some organic, refined, whatever, orange juice or cranberry juice, and it's got like 50 grams of sugar in it. And you're like, kids are supposed to have 23 grams of sugar a day. Total, their whole day. You just gave them two days worth of sugar in like 30 seconds. And, and they mean why they're crazy and right. why they crash. Totally. And it's because they have ADD. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and that's, that's an interesting thing too, because I'll hear that from people being like, well, I had orange juice this morning. But it was like natural. I'm like, did you squeeze the oranges? Yeah. And I'm like, well, here's, in my opinion, I'm like the equivalent of that is you get one of those orange juices and it's like 17 oranges. Yeah. I'm like, I want you to try to eat 17 oranges. For sure. And that's, that's going to provide the fibers that's actually going to slow down the digestion process as well. I want you to try to do that. Actually, you know what? Why don't you try to eat two oranges <laughs> and let me know how you feel after that one. And it's like, well, it's 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 natural, and it's like, is that's its natural state? No, orange juice isn't coming down from the sky. Yeah, and the orange juice you buy has sugar added to it, right? All those for the most part yeah. have sugar added, so it's not like you're even just getting the sixteen oranges. You're getting sixteen oranges in like two cups of sugar. My hack in those areas, I always, if I ever try to go in, and I need something to eat, the only thing I can find without added ingredients and without a huge presence of carbohydrate is pork grinds. Mm-hmm. You can go in there and it's just I like know, I hate them. I wish I liked them. Um, the what are the the chicharrones are the ones that have like a little bit of extra fat on there, so okay. it doesn't just taste quite as dry. It just freaks me out. It's like it reminds <laughs> me of like the stuff that you give your dog, like the pig's feet or whatever for dog. I'm like I can't. I just people would be better off eating that stuff. I'm sure they would, but like I, I'll stick with some almonds. <laughs> <laughs> True. Now. All right, so we have kind of the, the two pieces there from like movement and a nutrition side of it. There's there's so many articles, and there's so many things that you've looked into in your, you know, 
you talked about Broken Science Initiative about being kind of like the birth child from the pandemic and all that stuff happening. But you guys have been doing this stuff for so much longer. Greg has been at war with anyone trying to impede in the health and wellness and fitness space with, you know, this, this broken science. From like a science standpoint and one of the most, what do you think is the most falsely understood thing that people are like, hey, no, this is what we have to do. But it's just not the, not the case. Ooh, that's a heavy. I think, I mean, again, I think it's like it sort of depends on the audience. I think the average American like still doesn't know that like fat's not bad for you. If you have fat and sugar, it's bad, right? But I think the average American doesn't know a, like a lot of the stuff that's put out there about, I mean, calories in, calories out right? Like that most people still think that. They don't think that it's about the quality of the food. They think it's about thermodynamics and it's not. It's like your body processes energy, right? So it's going to take the food based on the quality of the protein, the quality of the fat, the quality of the carbohydrate, and it's going to do different things with it. I mean, I always joke that like when I was in high school and people were like, no, you know, don't fat so bad. Like my best friend and I ate like peeps, you know, those like marshmallow yeah. for a week. And we were like, we haven't had any fat all week, right? Like, <laughs> that's crazy. But actually, it was very much in line with the idea of like, you're trying to like limit calories and limit fat calories mostly, right? So like you'd see the fat people walking around with the snack wells. And it's like, it's fat free. And it's like, how's that working? Not so great, right? But I think that's a huge misconception. And there is still some debate within the research community about some of this stuff. I mean, there's a lot of debate, right? This is why, like, if you can't go on YouTube and say, like, don't eat carbs. I mean, like, I don't think people understand that, like, you cannot eat carbs at all. You can not eat a, strictly not carnivore. not a necessary macronutrient. Not a necessary, right. The so only they, one that's not. Uh-huh. And so why is it the base of our pyramid? Hmm. You know, I don't think most people, I think that's a big fallacy that still prevails. Probably not with your audience, right? But like if you're talking about like the well, general no, I, populace. I, I still think so. I still think there's a lot of people that – and it's not that we're up here saying like, hey, don't eat carbohydrates anymore. I mean especially when it relates to, you know, athletes and, and you know, super high-performing athletes. Like there's, there's some of that stuff that's going to benefit you in, in your performance. Maybe. Not necessarily Maybe. in the sense of health. Yeah. Well, I mean if you're – let's say you're a marathon runner and you are crashing – and people always wonder, they're like, well, if, if Coca-Cola is bad for you, then why would these people consume, like, you know, it's like because it's, it's pure sugar. It's not doing the healthy thing for your body, but it's doing exactly what it's intended to do, which is absolutely spike your glucose. For a short period duration. Right. Yeah. But I'm saying for strict performance. Yeah. But you see, though, I would push back on that a little bit. And like people like Sammy Inkin, do you know who that is, who started Verda? He was a world-famous Ironman, you know, winner or finalist or whatever. So huge triathlete. Mm -hmm. Endurance was his thing. Got type 2 diabetes and couldn't understand why. And he had a huge, I mean, obviously was eating a ton of carbs. Mm -hmm. And he had started, I want to say Trilio or some company and sold it for a ton of money. And so he was basically like, wait, I'm going to have to be on, I'm in this high-performing athlete. I'm going to have to, you know, start taking all these medications like this is crazy and so he dove into like Gary Taubes's work and mm -hmm. really started figuring out like no this is a carbohydrate metabolism and so there's a lot of you know keto athletes that are finding they can perform at that level but not right before a race like you have to be fat adapted right before right so that you're not dependent on this really quick 
source, exogenous, like outside source of energy. But that athletes are getting type 2 diabetes. I mean, there's a games athlete who I don't know if I should name or not, but she posted her blood work. She must be doing like a deal with like a lab company. And I screenshotted it because I was like, I'm sort of curious, like what are her labs saying? And she's pre-diabetic, right? Why? And she's talking about how like her, her sugar glucose is too high. So she needs to like change what she's eating, but she's not cutting down. I mean, she keeps posting pictures of herself eating shitty food, right? Like high carb food. And I think there is a, that is a misconception that I think probably in the next 10 years, people will start to move away from. Like you think that the, the best hunter, you know, 300 years ago was carb loading when he had to go on like a big hunt. No, he was probably fast. He was probably in a fasted state, mm-hmm. right? And did that hurt his performance? No, probably not, right? So I would, I mean, like, you know, whether that's solid or not, I don't know. But I do know, like, definitely athletes are as susceptible to type 2 diabetes as the average person is because it's an insulin secretion problem, right? And so if your pancreas can't handle the insulin anymore, it doesn't matter how much you're working out. You know, it's sort of that old, you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet. And I think that's, un- I, with the CrossFit community, that is something that really bothers me, is that I think the, the games athletes who have these massive platforms do a huge disservice to the average person by acting as though they can eat a different diet. Because what's happening is that they look ripped, right? They look super fit. But internally, and, you know, I've said this to Dave, like, I wish we could get blood work done on all the games athletes as like an entry thing because it would be really interesting to see if like you didn't look at the outside of the person, you only looked at the inside. Are they really the fittest? That one that I'm talking about did not look like the fittest person I know from a blood perspective. Right? Well, if we, if we incorporate from our, you know, our four models of fitness, the sickness, wellness, fitness continuum, mm-hmm. it's like you have to put biomarkers on there. Mm-hmm. Imagine the first event of the CrossFit Games was your, was your health biomarkers. Yeah, it was like, your, what's your A1C, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I would love, that would be the kind of games I'd get into. Like Josh Bridges had the best ejection fraction <laughs> in this one, so he actually took first place in this event. Um, it, yeah, again, very, very interesting stuff, but I, I've yet to have anyone be like, hey, I, I've, I've really got to, or, you know, they get to that point where a doctor says, hey, you're glucose intolerant, so this is, you know, that this is like pre-diabetic and type 2 diabetes is, you know, on the way, and have someone change their diet to eating healthy fats, eating protein, stop eating that, and have a quality of life go down. Mm-hmm. I've, I've yet to meet, and, and there's people who are like, well, I added carbs and my performance is great. It's like, okay, understandable, and not to say that you can't, like, you can't have any carbs and still live a healthy life, but you know, it's, it's, it goes, it goes one way, but not the other. Yeah. But you know, the other thing to add to that is that I, and I think this is like a, we all have such a short attention span that this gets lost. I think this is about, you know, and someone's got to come up with a better way of saying this because it sounds awful, but it's metabolic derangement over time, right? So you look at all these kids that are developing um, fatty liver, which used to be called, they now call it non-alcoholic fatty liver for kids. Because it used to be only alcoholics had livers that look like this, right? And then people started showing up with, you know, really like these crazy livers. And they'd say, like, I don't drink. And their doctors were like, you're lying. Mm-hmm. And it's like, the person's not lying. And they start seeing all these kids. Well, it comes from sugar. Turns out sugar is actually harder on the liver than alcohol. So then you, you know, you start pulling back and you think, well, what's going to happen to these kids in 20 years? Right? So, like, you may have an athlete who can now handle <coughs> lots of sugar. Mm-hmm 
because of their exercise or because of what the way they are. But they're they're hurting or causing harm to their metabolic system, which over time will appear, right? So it may not be present now, but it's like all of these things are sort of an investment. So like you talk to people who had a lot of sugar as kids, they have a much harder time losing weight as grown-ups because they've done more damage over time, right? Mm. So I used to run these women's health centers that we'd, we did. It wasn't CrossFit, but it was basically a high-intensity functional movements. We didn't have barbells. It was four women at a time, and it was really focused on middle-aged women. And I had this constant thing where people would be like, well, but my son can eat this, and he's fine, right? Or like my girlfriend, she can eat whatever she wants, and she's fine. Yeah. And I would always be like, well, it's sort of like sun. Right? Like if I go out with one of my like black friends to the beach, I'm putting sunscreen on, right? They're not. It, we're not we're, we're made differently. And so I'm not going to be like, well, that's not fair. So I'm not going to wear my sunscreen, yeah. right? Like I will get burned. <laughs> and I think there's this there is this like idea of fairness around like what people can eat or not. That's really like not good for you as an individual to put that hat on. Like you got to figure out what you can handle and what you can. And I think a lot of it has to do with how you've eaten over time. I think that's a very, very important point. And I think that it's, you know, kind of hits home for people because people will look at what someone else is doing and say, well, they're doing this so I can do this. Instead of taking that look back, again, taking the power back into the individual to say, is this working for me? Totally. And it's pretty clear when you do that, that it wouldn't be. Yeah. Now, something I want to talk about too, is we talk about reading ingredient lists, sugar alcohols. Mm. Yeah. No sugar on a, you know, on a, um, Quest bar that has Oreo cookies sticking out of it. What's going on there? So, and I don't know a ton about this, so I'm stepping out of my lane a little bit. But I feel like I eat those things and my tummy hurts. So it's like I don't think the sugar alcohol is, is doing you any favors. And I don't know from like the literature standpoint, like whether they're as bad as sugar. I doubt they are, right? I bet that like, you know, even all the fake sugar stuff is probably better for you mm-hmm. than actual sugar. Um, but I also think, like, I am a, sort of a weird believer, and you know, with the exception of, like, sugar tastes great and we all love it. So, like, not you can't listen to your body entirely. But, like, if your body's having a bad reaction to something, eh, probably stay away from it, right? And I feel like people eat those Quest bars and they, like, put themselves into, like, you know, or, like, too much protein powder, right? And that, Well, the, the amount of fiber that they have in those Quest bars, like, oh, it's good. Like, if I eat one and a half Quest bars, I need a bathroom Within yeah, I'm not a fan of the like subtract the fiber uh, from the carbs. It, like that feels exist. like a, a real stupid thing. hack. It's that's not, not real. right. It doesn't work. Like just try to go with like the straight up what the carbs are, not doing this weird math equation where they're loading you up with fiber and other things in order to justify eating something else. And it's like all these things, you know, like the, the this isn't we're over it's again, it's the overcomplication of all of this stuff. It's like I mean, I am a big believer in, like, just go and shop around the perimeter of the supermarket, right? Mm. Like, have fruit, have vegetables. That's fine. But, like, if you can't hunt it and you can't grow it, then you probably shouldn't eat it. Or you shouldn't eat it in, like, I mean, I'm not a big fan of, like, don't ever have chocolate cake. Yeah. Right? Like, but just know what you're doing when you do it. Be informed about it. And it's it's also the quantity in which... You know, but the sugars and people are like, oh, it's naturally occurring. It's like it didn't naturally occur in that bar. <laughs> right. Like, like I love that about that people bar. who go on like the maple syrup kick. And you're like, do you know what? You'd have to go tap a fucking tree and stand there for like five days 
Just to like, get a tiny drop of it. That much maple syrup that like, you're putting. Yeah, yeah, it's the same with oranges, right? If you have like, if you have a you know a gallon of orange juice, it's like your body's going to know that, right. that that's going to be terrible on it. Like, well, it's natural, like, but not in that amount. No, right, right. Um, it's like another thing when people are like, oh, but I love sugars. They taste so good. Why would it be so good? If it, and it's like, I can imagine that the high you get from crack cocaine is unbelievable. <laughs> People ruin their whole lives and give up everything that they've ever worked for for that. Yep. Opioids, black tar heroin, you name it. I'm sure those things feel fantastic. Uh-huh. We can even go down the, the route of the, the significance of what happens to your brain relative to sugar and that type of stuff. It's like just because it tastes good doesn't mean it's like, hey, right. you should be doing it. And it, what's so interesting to me is that you could find someone who's morbidly obese and they can be being like, well, I'm just going to have a little bit of sugar. Just, you know, I worked hard today. I did that. And, and people are kind of like, okay, you know, sure. But if you had someone who was um, sick from, you know, smoking crack, and they're like, well, I've been really good lately and things are, you know, good. I'm just going to smoke a little bit of this crack just to, you know, take the edge off. And you're like, that's no, what we're doing not. after the show, right? Just a little bit of crack? No, we're going to do a lot of it. <laughs> I bought a lot of it. it, it, is, it, it but it's like the, people don't have that same understanding of it, understanding no. of what sugar is doing to them and what's brought them to that point. And one of my like big pet peeves that I feel like I'm a very protective person just by nature. Mm-hmm. And I think you oftentimes you see somebody who's really overweight and people are like, oh, she could afford to skip a meal. And it's this wild misunderstanding of how the endocrine system works, right? And it's like, actually, people who are morbidly obese are starving. They are literally internally starving because they cannot access their fat stores, which is part of the reason that the high-carbohydrate diet is, like, so hard to get off of when you're in that state because you can't access any of your fat for energy. So you are entirely reliant on outside energy sources. Carbohydrates, as we were saying, are such a fast-acting source of energy. And as soon as you've burned through that and it's stored as fat, you are back to feeling starving. And so, you know, when you get fat adapted or you're trying to put somebody on a ketogenic diet, what you're doing is you're basically, like I like to say, like you're switching the, the, the fuel tank. But it's painful, right? And like people get headaches and they feel lightheaded and they feel like they have the flu and all these things. And you have to be like, it's okay. It's because you can't access this yet. But if you stick with it, you're going to suddenly have more energy than you ever know what to do with. And you're not going to be hungry, right? And people are always, I remember when I was helping these women in the gyms, they would say like, I don't know what to do. I'm so bored. Like I don't, I don't even want to eat anymore. And I'm like, well, find another hobby, yeah. right? Like, is that the worst thing in the world? Because it's like you've gone from being starving and all you can do is think about eating food to not eating, but being actually, you have all this fat on your body that you're accessing and that you're now able to actually utilize as energy. But it breaks my heart the way that we talk about people who are morbidly obese, because I don't think that most people understand, like, they're not satiated. They're not, it's not like when I have a steak and I'm like, oh shit, I can't eat anymore. Mm -hmm. They are always hungry. It's their state because they cannot access their body fat. And so the way we talk about them is so disrespectful, I think, in that regard of like, oh, you know, what are you – like you see somebody who's really fat eating like a salad 
and you think like, oh, well, that's good or whatever. And it's like, no, you have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea how that person feels internally in terms of their hunger society like sort of spectrum. So I always like to point that out. I think it's like it's 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 such a disservice to everybody to try and explain that you know, or not explain that and skip over it. It's hard to relate to for someone like myself who you know done intermittent fasting for a long time for the sole purpose of that it was easier for me. Mm-hmm. And my diet consists of high protein, high fat. And you know, there's all the time when I'm in the office and people like see donuts out there and like, how can you not have one of these? And like, because how I feel right now is different from how you feel Yeah. because that is your source of energy. And just like you were saying, it's like processed carbohydrates are going to spike your glucose. Boom. Glucose levels if what, what's average hundred milligrams per deciliter sure. and rockets up. And then what's it going to do is rocket down. I'm never going to hit this. That's point. right. I'm not going to be at that point because once I start to dip, Yep. With my experience in, in fasting, that's when you know glucagon is released from the pancreas and it's like, hey, any, any sort of fat that we have in here, we're going to utilize this for energy. So when I'm here, other people are here. And I guess sometimes I, that was actually really good for me to hear, especially when I work with a lot of people who are morbidly obese, is to be like, hey, I, I don't know how you feel, but I do know that if you do this, it will improve. Yeah. You won't hit those lows anymore because I can't imagine... You know, I think like, oh, if I was morbidly obese and I was hungry, I would make the right call. Mm -hmm. But it's probably a feeling very similar to if someone is addicted to some sort of drug or doing something. It's like to not have that desire or want to go back to it. Well, the way you just described it is exactly what happens to the brain with Coke or like some a lot of drugs. Like the serotonin levels, you're basically like extending the um, serotonin output. So you're releasing more and you're holding it. And then when it's done, you're crashing way lower than you ever would have gone, right? Which is why people want more and why they feel like shit. And so I think glucose is very similar to that in, a, in exactly the way you described. So I think that's a really interesting way of, of thinking about it is that, like, you can be kind of steady state or you're going to have these massive swings up and down. And, you know, I mean, I think, I don't know, there's so much to this, but, I, you know, I, I do definitely think that, like, it's very hard to explain to people that are, I mean, Hunger is probably one of those survival, you know, feelings in Mm -hmm. our bodies that is really like survival. It's it's deeply entrenched. And so just imagine if you felt like hungry all the time. And then when you ate, you felt immediately better. Why wouldn't you eat when you felt hungry? For sure. Greg has this funny thing that he tells about this um, bear claw or something. When he was training and he would ride his bike. And he'd pass this, like, you know, donut shop or whatever, and he'd stop and get his bear claw, and then he would be like, oh, fuck it, I should not do that. So he would, you know, not one day, like, ride by and not get the bear claw. And he was like, and the bear claw would, like, yell at me. Like, it would scream (laughs) and be like, Greg, Greg, (laughs) come on over and eat me. And so then he'd be like, oh, shit, I, you know, like, I haven't had one for a week. I'm going to go back over. And he's like, but if I could go, like, two weeks without the bear claw, like, I could just ride by and, like, not even think about it, right? But... If I had one, then the next day it was like, it was all like, I'm like a two blocks away. I'm one block away. I'm a hundred feet away. I'm like, right. And it's like, we all know that. I mean, that's a great, it's like a silly story, but it's true. It's like the more you have that stuff, the more you want that stuff. Right. Probably similar with caffeine, nicotine, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. any sort of stimulant. Right. Sugar is a stimulant. Yeah. But I even think about that with caffeine because there are times when I'm like, all right, I'm consuming a thousand milligrams of caffeine a day. I need to, and I have enough discipline to hard stop. 
struggle through it. Day seven to nine is usually when I start to turn the corner. And then once I hit day 10, I'm like, I'm actually good. My energy levels are really good. Yep. And then I go a few weeks, maybe months before that. I would do it before competition. And I'm like, you know what? I'm a little bit tired. I didn't get as much sleep. I'm going to have a cup of coffee. And you drink it and you're like, this is why people have this. This is amazing. And then yep. the next day it's a cup and a half. And then that's, again, my personality. Did you ever do anything where like you didn't have it? But then, like, right before a competition, you would have it to yes. have that energy boost. That's I mean, like, I that's do. a great way to think of it, right? Like, as a performance-enhancing kind mm-hmm. of, like, if you're not on it and you're not dependent on it, then you do get this, like, surge of energy from right. it. I would always do the first workout. So, like, at the 2017 CrossFit Games, the first workout was a run-swim-run, which I was the skinniest person in the field, especially when you get to, like, the team side of things. Everyone is so jacked. And I was just like, beep. <laughs> and so the first one is a run-swim-run, and I'm like, cool, I'm going to be breezing through this did the run, swim, run, and then the later event was like somewhere in the Coliseum. And I had one uh, shot of espresso. It was like a caveman coffee espresso. And I still, to this day, that's the best espresso (laughs) shot I've ever had because it was like, it put me exactly where I needed to be. I was laser focused. And now it's like I have a coffee and I'll like get kind of close to there and then it goes down and get kind of close to there. But you're chasing that high. That's it. (laughs) And that's why I don't you know, I've had, I've had many surgeries in the Navy uh, outside of it. I just recently had one on my elbow and I told the doc, I was like, I don't want narcotics because I love, I I remember I got Percocets when I shattered my tib fib, you know, in the Navy, they're like, here's 120 and then (laughs) refill it whenever you want. And I loved, loved the way that they felt. I would in fact, sometimes not take them to then like afterwards when I was healthy to like I would like take a little bit and then go out and then I would take more. And it got to the point that I would uh, every time ended up flushing them down the toilet because I'm like, these have a control over me. Yeah. I love these. Well, that's very good self-awareness. I'm very self-aware. Yeah. Maybe to a fault. Maybe, I should, maybe I should work on, on doing things better rather than just being aware of Well, no. The first things. step is you can't do anything better until you are aware of it, right? Yeah. So now I need to start doing things better. My friends always tell me I'm very self-aware. Well, I think abstaining from something like that when in an appropriate environment, right, where it would be fine yeah. to take it, is doing something. Yeah. With that, there's other things. Do you want to talk about what work. else? <laughs> this is actually a counseling session. What do you need to work on, Connor? <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> we don't have enough time for that. I don't know who those guys are. Bruins are playing tonight. Oh, they are? Yeah. Oh, that's fun. Um, I just posted a picture of me and Cam Neely. That's funny. When was that? Oh, it was taken a couple years ago, but um, he's great. I adore him. I love Bruins. I've never met Cam Neely. Oh, well, his office is over there. I, uh, I used to train a Bruins player. He doesn't play anymore. Speaking of, like, holistic people, um, he's a defenseman for the Bruins, and now he has a ranch in Utah, and he just lives out there. And But he started a hunting company, and he originally, we were chatting about it, and he's like, well... Um, me and Brad are going to start this company so we can write off our, our hunting trips, like, cool. as, like tax write-offs. And I was like, you guys can have the most popular hunting brand. People care about what you guys are doing. But, it, you know, it's so uh, uh, Martian Mill Co. is what it's called. So Kevin Miller and Brad Martian. And in one, uh, Marsh, he was injured last year and came back from his injury like record fast. Is that you? Do do you get credit for that? No, not at all. (laughs) He was like, he's like, the only meat I eat or the only foods I eat are things that I hunt. Oh, that's cool. And it's like, and you know, and and they all talk about like the health benefits of it and how like healthy you look at like two guys that are like 
you know, they, they like to play both sides of the coin too, you know. Kevin probably not as much anymore, and same with like Marshan. I can't be like, oh, they're the super healthiest guys, and then someone has a video of them like spraying <laughs> a champagne bottle with goggles on on top of one of our club venues in there. But that's appropriate in certain environments, yeah. right? Hey, that's, that's what we say. <laughs> be healthy enough to be able to do that. That's right. And understand what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Don't you know when pe- that's what drives me crazy too? When people are like, oh, this is a healthy alcohol, and you're like, stop it. Yeah. Like I get if you're yeah. not having a bunch of sugars in it, but but stop masking it. Like, right. Let's not try to call alcohol healthy. Let's not. Yeah. You know, it goes back to you're like, oh, if you drink three glasses of wine a day, your heart health is going to be better. Right. And you're like, eh, better than somebody who doesn't drink at all, right? Or yeah. better than somebody who drinks like two bottles of wine, right? Like, where are we in this relativity? Yeah. But yeah, no, I think that that all that stuff is kind of funny. But that's cool. I mean, I think our food supply is like a whole nother topic, right? Like mm-hmm. all the things that happen to eggs and meat and whatever, even if you're trying to eat a carnivore diet, you got to be kind of careful about where you're getting your food from because the additives in food in the United States is pretty nuts. Somebody was saying they're going to like start vaccinating all these, you know, animals or whatever. So we get the vaccines that way. And I'm just like, I can't keep up with all of this. Like it's too much. And, but it does make me want to have a ranch. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Not that I didn't anyway, but like, (laughs) you know, yeah. The cowgirl in me has always wanted to have a ranch, but for the food supply, we can justify it, right? When, so. you, when you talk about a ranch too, it, it reminds me of kind of two things. One, I believe like there is a vegan lifestyle and what vegan, true vegan people who don't want to like harm things, and that's owning a sustainable ranch. That's eating meat, that's doing mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. that where the, where the cows defecate is where things grow and then yep. they graze and there's all this stuff. Like that's, that's a true, like if you don't want to like harm things, because things are going to get harmed. But- it, it almost made me laugh, but I was just too focused on what you were saying. I didn't want to like try to backtrack. But when you talked about the person who was um, supposed to be looking into these research papers, being the one who wrote two of them and best friends with someone else, it was like that documentary. Um, what was it called? Game Changer? Oh. Or there was a book. There, there was like a vegan yes. book. No, the yeah, vegan yeah, yeah. Game Changer. Yeah, and yeah. every single, every person that it goes in the list of credits has some tie to financial gain of vegan, whether it's a book, whether it's a supplement, whether it's yeah. all of these things. And you're like... There was so much fucked up about that movie. There was even something about like dudes getting boners or something like more with the vegan diet than the other one. And somebody who was involved in the production came out and they were like, we manipulated this like so badly that like that's not what the result was. Like, it was like literally every um, like anecdotal piece of evidence that came out of that. Somebody came out of the woodwork and was like, yeah, that's not, we shot that in a way that was like not at all what it was supposed to be. I mean, <coughs> that, that was interesting. Actually, that was like when Greg was doing the DDCs. Yeah. And I feel like, I don't know if we watched it there, but it was like everybody was like, oh, my God. I mean, the thing for me is like, again, like go back to sort of like the most simple answer for things, right? Like usually that's right. And I feel like when people are like, oh, I'm a vegan or whatever, like I always joke, I have a friend who's a vegan and she's like a big vegan influencer. And she will post these pictures of herself like at these conferences. I'm like fairly confident she doesn't watch your show. Otherwise, I'll be in trouble. But like and the people are like either really fat and unhealthy looking or they're like these waifs and their skin is green and they're gross. And then I'm like, and then go to like a CrossFit event or something like, you know, and you're just like, do I want to look like these people <laughs> or do a, I want to look yeah. like these people? You like, take your shirt off, I'll take mine <laughs> right? off. We're going to see what it's happens. That is exactly that. Let's right? do our blood work. Right. That was actually something that, um, that I always loved that Glassman would say. And it's like, this is a, this is a competent, and it was, just, it was defending CrossFit. And it was like, this is a whose penis is biggest competition, yet I'm the only one with my dick out and a ruler. <laughs> right. Like proverbial. Um, 
but there, I mean, there's there's so much cool stuff that that you've done and that you've been a part of that has just been, I mean, huge. Into if if people have interest in digging into that, it's changed lives. It's changed my life, and then by proxy, the people that I'm training and trying to help out. So, like, obviously, the work you're doing is incredible. Oh, well, that's nice. Of you. And um, thank you. I mean, I feel like I could just go on for. I mean, just digging into all sorts of different topics, but I don't want to, you know. I think scratching the surface. You've got crack to get to. A lot. That's right. <laughs> it's calling my name. That was another uh, crazy uh, documentary. Um, it's uh, it's like this is AM. Um, this there was a DJ. It was like an original DJ who was like addicted to crack, and then was off of it for like twenty years, and even did like MTV shows helping people. And he said he was at um, he was like working with police during the show, and he went into a room and there was a table like this, and there was all sorts of drugs all over it: heroin, weed, cocaine, wow. everything. And he said he, he walked into the room, this is like on the documentary, and there was a bag of crack and it, it, it like, it like zoned in on it. And he was like, I have to get out of this room, like, wow. like from the addiction the hold, piece of yeah. it. And he ended up at one point in time going into his New York apartment and smoking enough crack to kill himself. Oh. But it was, I mean, we talked no, about No, addiction, I that. mean, like you talk about like, you know, the opioid crisis, right? And it's like, it's profound how the brain becomes adapted to that state of, of a high or... You know, and I think when you look at people who got into that stuff because they were in pain, right? And mm-hmm. and it was prescribed, and they thought it was the right thing to do, it, yeah. and it becomes a slippery slope. And I don't know if you know Dale King; he's a good friend of mine. Mm-mm. But he has um, a box in Portsmouth, Ohio, which was the pill mill capital of the world. He just had a documentary that came out that was called Small. Oh, Time Strong. yes, 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 yeah. Okay, and I was wondering why that sounded familiar. But yeah, yeah, and um, and so he's you know working really hard to work with addicts. And use the sort of like Greg's methodology to then, um, you know, give them another stimulus. And it's working mm-hmm. in, in these really cool kind of crazy, not really unexpected. If you've done, you know, if you've done that kind of movement pattern and you know how you feel at the end of it, you can understand why that is also sort of an addiction. Mm-hmm. And so replacing one for the other. And then the other thing Dale's done, which is profound, is realize that like no one when somebody comes out of rehab, it's a little bit like coming out of prison. And if you don't have a sense of purpose, like I really believe that happiness is about sense of purpose. And I think you see this profoundly when you have people come out of some traumatic or hard situation, they need to be redirected to something where they're serving others and they're being helpful and they feel their output is meaningful. And so he's created all these little companies to employ people because he realized like, if you get out of rehab, we can do CrossFit all day. But if you don't have a job, yeah. well, I'm not going to be able to help you. So, okay. Do you know who Alfred Adler is? Yeah, it's a very familiar name. Adlerian but... theory. Okay. Like the philosopher. That was kind of like one of his biggest pieces is people would always ask, like, what's the meaning of life? And there was kind of like a, like, like when it comes down to it, it's like there isn't like a, like a meaning, but what everyone seeks and what everyone wants is to be of use to others. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and it didn't matter of what use as long as you had use and you believed that you had use, it didn't matter the level of it, but to achieve happiness was to have, is to be useful for others. Mm-hmm. And there's another book, Chasing the Scream, and kind of talks about addiction in that sense. But, you know, Phoenix Multisport has a bunch of different CrossFit affiliates. Mm-hmm. And it's like they're getting people that are out of rehab, employing them, yep. and giving them an opportunity to train as long as they're sober for 48 hours. Mm-hmm. And it gives them another addiction and then gives them a, a sense of purpose as well, a sense of that, like, you know, I, I, I draw all the way back to 
like in the military, and we talk about this, like the veteran suicide. And a lot of people believe, oh, veterans are, are committing suicide because of what they did in war and what they did overseas. And, and I just don't think that's true. I think what happens is that you have a sense, it doesn't matter if you're doing paperwork, it doesn't matter if you are doing any job that you have, but there's people that rely on you to do your job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. critically. And, and then when you come back here and people are starting to go to school or people get, it's like, cool, I got my GI Bill, I have money, I have this, I have all of this. And even people that have, you know, disability and they're getting their disability paychecks and it is, but without the sense of purpose, right. you know, it comes back to all like, you know, even like, you know, tracking way back. There's a, I keep saying this, like there's a book Tribe by Sebastian Younger. I was Younger. just going to bring that up. I, that's one of my favorite books. Me too. I love him. I'm doing this new show called Emily Unleashed and I'm talking to people who have challenged the status quo or changed the paradigm. Mm-hmm. He's on my list. I love him. You know, he grew up in Belmont. I didn't know that. Yeah. He wrote The Perfect Storm. He's written all, he wrote War. He's written a lot of great books. He's like one of my favorite authors. But Tribe is exactly that. I mean, yes. It's exactly that. And it's like when he talks to the kids who like were in the basement. I read, this, I read it so long ago, but that's always stuck with me. It just is like it's such a great image. And like, you know, the bombs are going off and it's like they're teenagers, right? And they're like, that was my happiest time in life. And it's like, well, of course it was. It's like right after 9-11, the suicide rate in the United States was zero. Why? Because everybody felt this call to action and this unity Right. And this ability to think like, oh, my God, I, I have to do something. Mm. I think it's everything. The suicide rate in the Great Depression was, yep. was significantly lower than it is now. Right. Right. And you know about home base. Yeah. So I feel like they're doing really cool work. And that a lot of that is about narrative. Right. So it's like, what's your story? Mm-hmm. And I think it goes to the same idea of like, what was your purpose there and what's your purpose now? And, you know, how do you navigate and chart your way through these difficult times? Yeah, it's cool. It's cool stuff. It's cool to, you know, we kind of talked on here about <clears throat> people doing the things wrong, and whether it started off as inherently bad or not inherently bad. Here's the things, and here's where people can like do some of this stuff for themselves. But what you just said with home base with Phoenix, there's just infinite, not infinite, but there are resources out there that can be of help for anyone, you know, with either mental or physical, which you know it, are really one and the same. Um, to help with any sort of addiction, any sort of depression, any of this stuff. But I mean, if you just come all the way back and narrow it down, it's like having some sense of purpose. And then in order to be that best, it's like, what are you putting in your body? And what are you doing for movement? Well, it's always like, the, you know, the, if you're having a really shitty day, I feel like the best thing you can do is go do something nice for somebody else. Like buy somebody a coffee, do something nice for somebody else, and you will like immediately feel better. I don't know exactly what that is, but I feel like it's definitely worth trying, right? Like you have bad news, you get fired, you're, somebody breaks up with you, whatever. Go and do something random, nice for somebody else that you're never going to get anything back from, right? It can't be transactional. And you will leave feeling, so. you'll just leave feeling better. And I think it goes to the sense of helping other people and doing things for people and feeling like you're actually connected and you can make a difference. Maybe you're feeling like shit, but you can make somebody else feel good. That might be the most profound thing that has been said on this podcast. <laughs> and it's funny because we talk about these major, major topics. But, you know, I always say, and like what I told you before, I always like having listeners be like, okay, here's something I can change right now mm-hmm. today. And it's like, if you were to do that, and I think about the times when that's happened as well. <clears throat> and maybe I haven't consciously been like, I'm having a shitty day. I'm going to do something like that. But even well, I think about the days. When you that, told me that, I had a different answer. 
when you said, like, I like to ask people one thing they can leave. Well, you've dropped a lot of them so far. People are going to be learning. People are are going to improve their quality of life (laughs) in this podcast. Well, then I have to ask, what were you thinking when I had said that that's a question that I often ask? So I was thinking about, I was thinking about it for like five seconds because I think I'm sort of, because of all of the cancel culture stuff where I've like sort of helped a lot of people who have been, I would say, wrongly accused of things or canceled for other intent, you know, for other purposes, which we haven't really talked about, but um, I think forgiveness is like a lost art. I think it's like when I was growing up, we were ta- we talked a lot about forgiveness, and you ta- it was like part of being compassionate, right? It was like forgiving a friend for doing something wrong, forgiving yourself for not getting the grade you wanted or whatever. We don't talk about it anymore. And I think if everybody could just do one thing to forgive somebody or forgive themselves for something, it's like. Greg and I were actually just talking about this the other day, not in a forgiveness sense, but he was talking about resentment, and it actually perfectly transitions into this. And I don't think he'll mind me saying it. I don't want to say who he was talking about. But he was saying, I wish this person would just call and apologize to me because I feel like I'm carrying this 40-pound weight around that's resentment, and if they just said sorry, then I, I wouldn't want to hang out with them. But I wouldn't have to carry the weight around anymore. And I think that's twofold. That's him being able to let it go and forgive them, right? right? But it's also, for me, it's like the, when you're walking around holding a grudge against somebody, and I think like I, I'm like biologically weird or whatever, and it doesn't always serve me well. But like I'll go to bed really mad at somebody for doing something horrible to me, and I wake up in the morning and I'm not mad anymore. And my mom was always like, it's a gift. And I'm like, no, it's not, because I get fucked over and then I forgive the person, Right. But as I get older, I realize it is because I don't have to carry that anymore. I'm not mad at them. I can hang out with them or whatever, and I can ultimately see, like, this was, you know, them or me or our chemistry or whatever. And I, I can't – I can pretend to be mad, but I don't actually feel it in my heart. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so – and I think, like, when there are situations – so I think that's part of the reason I'm so protective of other people is because – it's easier for me to be mad at somebody for doing something bad to somebody that I love than it is for me to be mad at somebody for doing something bad to me. And I think the idea of just sort of collectively forgiving, like we're so polarized, where people become so entrenched, whether it's about, you know, politics or how to raise your kids or like just everybody take a beat, right? Like nobody's 100% right. Nobody's 100% wrong. Ultimately, I believe we all want better for our kids than we have for ourselves. You want to have health and you want to be able to learn. You want to be able to enjoy life. These are not different between us. And so though, if those are our driving values or virtues, we should be able to forgive people for doing things differently than we did. We shouldn't be scared by that. It shouldn't intimidate us. We shouldn't be angry all the time. Like, who does that serve? It doesn't serve you to be pissed off all the time, mm. right? So I think forgiveness is like, I would say, like, try to go out there and find some way to, like, forgive somebody, let something go, don't react to things, you know? Like, you don't have to react to everything. It's energy, wasted energy a lot of time, right? I think that's great, and I think it's true, and we might even start getting into the topics of the Bible, but we won't have to go that far, (laughs) That's not my area of expertise. Um, (laughs) I want to have you back on here. I want to talk more, because I feel like there's so much more we can talk about, especially in the realm of CrossFit, and I love that you're your, in Boston. I mean, I feel like this is easy. And I was actually sitting right here when I had reached out to you on the on the CrossFit book because I was like, you know what? Like, I never reach out. 
And a lot of times when I had, I had a Dr. Rocket in here and I've known him for a long time. He like helped me out before I had insurance and all sorts of stuff. But he was like, I wish you would have reached out sooner. And I was like, well, I didn't want to be like, Hey, can we do this stuff? And you know, I've met and spent a lot of time with, not a lot of time, but I've met and spent some time with Greg and I was actually the reason why he goes to Santarpios because he's like, we need to find a pizza spot after the Harvard Divinity oh, that's Center. that's so funny. Yeah, Karen was, like, was saying to me, she was one. like, I'm sure that you've hung out with Connor, maybe at Santarpios. <laughs> and I was like, maybe. Probably at some point. Um, but if people, in the meantime, if people want to find you, follow you, ask you questions, how do they get a hold of you? Um, so social media-wise, I am news, not noise on my personal account. We'll link that. Um, and then Emily underscore Unleashed is the new show. Okay. Um, and then uh, Broken Science Initiative is like the main one. And then the CrossFit book. There's a lot. We'll link all of those. We'll put them all in there. <laughs> On Twitter, I am now, I just changed my thing because it was like too complicated before. So I'm Emily Kaplan X on Twitter. And we have Broken underscore Science on Twitter too. So those Amazing. are the best ways. Yeah. And then reach out to you. Reach out. With any questions, inquiries, um, if there's any topics that you want to dive into more too, and then we can figure out another time to have you in here and even have some some questions that we can go over. Sure, and that'd be great. Get in the depths of a lot of different stuff. It's fun. Yeah, I know. I feel like there's so many things we didn't even touch on, but it was an amazing conversation. It went so fast. I had to forget that I had to ask questions. That's why there was like there was like <laughs> periods I'm just listening. And then when you stopped talking, I was like, oh, oh yeah, other people are listening to this too. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. Um, if you have any questions that you want to reach out to me, um, as you know, you can find us at Big Night Fitness on Instagram, uh, BigNightFitness.com to see any of the events we're running. We've got some really cool stuff coming up along with some charity events. Uh, Big Night CrossFit, we're running classes on Friday. If you want to come drop in, they usually fill up pretty quick, but uh, we have a good time. We've got a good little community there. So um, thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.